0: This is an ABC podcast. But one of the really lovely things to do is carry a little spray bottle with you. If you're out and about and you see some dried moss, spray the moss. You can watch them green in front of your eyes and it's really quite amazing. It's a good party trick.
1: Before you take one more step next time you're in the city, just look down. There are probably all manner of things right there growing, despite the fact that we've created a concrete desert. It's hot, it's dry, then there's flash floods, compaction, there's a lack of nutrients. And yet, some things persist, and one of those things is moss. I'm Dr Ann Jones and this is Off Track, where we're zooming in on small things with Alison Haynes from the University of Wollongong.
0: My name is Alison
1: Haynes, I'm a PhD... She's professor. writing a PhD all about mosses, and one aspect of it that should interest every person, how mosses might help clean the air of pollution. It's a simple question, but I have to ask, what is moss?
0: So, I would say that moss is a small, non-flowering plant that is generally non-vascular, so it doesn't have water transport tissues, and people would probably recognise it for growing in cushion or matte form. So, They've got really tiny leaves, they're only one cell thick, and some of them have little hair points, so that can create almost a sort of silky look. So in Australia, there's about a thousand species, and worldwide, there's around about ten thousand. I mean, I'd guess that there are some that aren't known and aren't described. They inhabit a really wide variety of of places. I think that's often surprises people that you do get desert mosses, for instance. How long can moss be
1: alive for as a plant?
0: Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I don't actually know, but Actually, I do have some ideas. Um, so the lab group that, that I'm in at the university, which is the um, Sharon Robinson Lab Group, who specialize in Antarctic moss, they've done some work dating some shoots. And some of those are hundreds of years old, like about 400, I think. So that would say that they can be quite long living and they're not dying either. Those ones aren't dying. So they're still going. If we look at the evolution of plants, one of the steps is for a vascular system, which is a way of transporting like water and nutrients around the plant. But mosses have coped with water, water transport and nutrients in a different way. And that relates to their scale. They're very small, so they can get all the water they need just through simple diffusion. So they have a very thin leaf. It's only one cell thick. So they, they actually absorb water straight from the environment. And the same with nutrients. They will just sort of seep through the cell walls into the plant. They don't have piping, if you like. They they can move the water a little bit around the cushion it will fall in droplets and it can be held by the sort of the form of the plant but not actually these specialized tissues does it actually have roots that are searching for soil no so that's why it can exploit these niches and cracks because going back to what we were talking about it's being non-vascular one of the aspects of that is that it it means it doesn't have roots it Roots are specialized transport systems. It's got something called rhizoids and rhizoids, they're like sort of anchoring little tiny fibers that sort of help anchor the moss, but they're not actually root systems. And again, going back to the fact that it's small, it can get its water and its nutrients directly from the environment. So that's why it can go in these sort of tiny places little cracks in the in the road and the pavement yeah you probably notice it in a, in a variety of little spots like that. You do sometimes see little sort of
1: things that I always thought were flower stalks coming off mosses but they're not, not flowering plants so how
0: do they reproduce? So they reproduce with spores and what you have noticed is the part of the moss called a sporophyte and no, it depends how biological we want to get here but um most is interesting because i don't know how good your biology is or or your listeners um whether you remember um the terms diploid and haploid so they refer to the number of sets of chromosomes so i guess we're used to thinking about a lot of organisms having two sets and that's diploid so that's what we are and then there's a are like the eggs and sperm are haploid but in moss, it's sort of the other way around in that the life form that we notice most of all, that green, um, like green mat or cushion, that's haploid. It's only got one set. And the sporophyte is actually the diploid bit. So it's sort a of reversal. So it's trees, for instance, just to sort of um, complete the, the, the concept. Trees are the sporophyte of flowering plants. But in moss, it's that little stalk and that stalk, it's, a, it's got the little bit at the top, it's a capsule and inside there is where the, the spores develop. When they're ready to fly out, disperse, the, the cap opens and tiny, tiny spores can, can move around in the air. So they were among the first colonizers. And I, I don't know how much like it, particular species have evolved, but mosses were some of the really early plants. One of the things that they had to work out was how to protect themselves against the sun. And they can do that with sunscreens that could be either in the cell or even in the cell wall. And the other really major thing, which is really fascinating with mosses, is that a lot of them are totally desiccation tolerant which is not the same as being drought tolerant. It actually means that they, when they haven't got enough water, they can just absolutely shut down and almost like, they call it drying without dying. So they're they're shutting down all their metabolism and they protect themselves with special chemicals and they can sort of wake up again if if there's water. Some some mosses have been known to dry for, I think even a hundred years and then come back to life when there's water
1: oh my god a hundred years how did they do that because if a tree's leaves become completely desiccated the cells themselves can sort of rupture and i mean well die essentially so how does moss get around it
0: so desiccation tolerance is part of that whole idea of how plants colonize the land and the way that they do it is well, one of the ways anyway, I think there's there's more than one sort of mechanism, but the, the way that mosses have is that they make glass-like structures from sugars, from carbohydrates, and they literally protect the cell wall. They protect a lot of the big molecules like DNA, I think some proteins as well. And that, so that's how they, they get around it. So you're right about the rupturing and that's the issue for most plants, but mosses are among those that can actually, and they'll there's lots of sort of physical things as well. You, you may have noticed that mosses will curl up. A lot of mosses will curl up when they dry and that's sort of protecting themselves as well. So
1: those sugars sort of create reinforcement on the cell wall almost as if you're putting up a framework to help protect it from rupturing?
0: Yes, that's how I imagine it. So it's a really physical physical protection.
1: On the opposite end of that spectrum, you know when it goes from wet to being dry. What's the time frame for the shutdown? You said it comes to life really quickly. Is it is it the same on the other end? Can it stop sort of photosynthesizing
0: pretty quickly? It will just photosynthesize when it can and when the when the environment's right. So for instance mosses in Antarctica and some of those will only photosynthesize for maybe an hour a day or even less. they will just they're very sort of opportunistic and I think that's part of why they're they are tough. They can sort of shut down and and sort of wake up again quite quickly, but it will depend on the species. So some will some will be more flexible than others. I would imagine that those that are in more extreme environments are the ones that that can sort of switch on and off more quickly. So there's there's a whole there's a range of different processes involved, and it, like it does involve like signalling up to to sort of um, the molecular dna production that kind of thing so it's there are some ways which are quicker than others and that's going to depend a bit on the species
1: so what sort of species would you expect to see in urban australia
0: silver moss is a very common urban moss its scientific name is Bryum argentium and it's the moss that you will often see in pavement cracks it's got a sort of a greeny silvery sheen, very small, tiny, tiny leaves. You might see it in big cushions. Actually, funny enough, there's um, in, a, in a quite polluted area. I know there's a huge, huge mat of it. So it's it's a really tough moss in the natural environment. It's it's found in deserts sort of probably smaller quantities, but it's like it's adapted really well to the urban environment. So it's found in cities sort of all over the world. It is found in Antarctica as well. So it's one of those just really, really sort of tolerant mosses. And the reason it's silver is because it's the tip of its leaves don't have any chloroplasts. The chloroplasts are, are what gives the leaf the green color. And that's where the photosynthesis happens. It's got a green pigment. But in the silver moss, the tips of the leaves don't have any any chloroplast they don't have any green and that's why it looks silver and the reason for that is that it's protecting the leaf further down so it's like a protective method of surviving in these sort of extreme really sort of bright light areas once you start noticing it
1: you actually see it all over the place and it becomes i mean it's quite a beautiful pastime i think searching for these tiny survivors of the environment in metropolitan landscapes
0: that's what i really like about it too and it's and it is funny because i mean i i grew up in england and would have had moss all around me but i i probably didn't take a huge amount of notice of it but now that i'm studying it like i'll go back there and i'll and i'll see things on like a ancient castle that i visited as as a child but you know now I'm looking for the moss (laughs) and um also moss is friends like lichen and liverworts and they're things that there's the small things but I I, that's something that I really like about it that it does make you sort of makes you look at look at the world a a bit differently
1: now when it comes to urbanization and plants there's been quite a bit of study and one of the fields that interests Alison is phytoremediation
0: so phyto means plant that comes from must be the greek and remediation improving so it's basically improving improving the atmosphere by plants so particularly in europe there's a lot of interest in that i collaborated with somebody from poland and that's got some really really bad um, air pollution problems. So they're looking at planting trees and planting shrubs, sometimes in a wall, sometimes by roadsides, to to capture some of this uh, particulate matter. And it's it's particularly useful in in Europe where some of the leaves drop and they and then they can they can remove those leaves. So you're sort of getting some cleaning of the air by the plants. They can also act as as barriers. So it can be like you could you could say protect a park might be protected from a road by having a whole a series of of tree plantings the particles can get caught on on little sort of structures on the leaves on like between veins um, on hairs and also in the, the cuticle in the waxy cuticle that that leaves have and again, it's going to change according to species. So there has been some research in Australia. It's just beginning, really. It's not been a lot of research um, as to which Australian native trees or which, which trees in Australia will, will do, do a better job of those things. So I think it's really, really interesting, really interesting area.
1: But are the plants themselves being impacted by particulate
0: matter that's floating around in the air? plants are sensitive to pollution it depends on the kind of plant and it'll depend on the species as well but it can affect across a whole range of things so if we think of particulate matter which are very tiny pieces of either solid or liquid found in the air then even just if you think about it a particulate matter on on a leaf it might it might be blocking the sunlight, so this photosynthesis can't be as efficient, or it might be blocking a pore, which normally would be emitting or receiving gas. So even at that very simple level, you can see that it could affect plants. And it's, I mean, it does affect, affect plants and, and the whole
1: ecosystems, actually. The plantings in cities can actually impact particulate matter readings in some areas. For a start, for example, some of them release pollen that
0: irritates us humans. And then there's this structural factor. Using trees in it's called phytoremediation, so sort of using using plants to to help to improve the air. It, you have to be careful which which trees you use because some canopies will will close up a, a tunnel and create a, a tunnel effect on the road. So there's been quite a bit of research on uh, canopy shape and which ones are good and 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 help, and other ones which which make it worse. But not so much research on smaller plants
1: or even very small plants like mosses. Alison has based her experiments on the land of the Dharawal people in the
0: Illawarra. Wollongong is a coastal city in New South Wales. It has a big sort of industrial history and it still has quite a bit of industry there but it's also obviously, so it's next to the sea, and it has an escarpment that runs parallel with the, with the coast. So it's, it's sort of a mixture of a place. It's got sort of wonderful natural areas, but it also does have this, this sort of industrial background as well. So I'm basically looking at the effect of urbanization on moss, diversity in particular, the project started as, can moss help bigger plants on green roofs? That's what it sort of started as. That's what I sort of thought, hmm, that could be interesting. But the more I looked at it, the, the more I realised we don't actually know much about how moss survives in in cities. So I decided I would sort of step back a bit and, and get a bit more sort of baseline information. So I'm looking at, for instance, how, how moss establishes itself. And I made some panels with... Um, different textures and I put those in 16 gardens people's gardens and so I suppose I'm looking at the different scale what like what matters to to moss diversity is it the is it the urbanization scale is it the regional the suburb is it the garden scale or is it um is it the like the very tiny scale as well the the micro topography and the microclimate? and uh, that yeah they're, they're some of the the main ideas there some experiments that
1: Alison ran are particularly to do with particulate matter. We
0: collected moss and tree leaves in three kinds of areas. So one would be right next to a, a busy road or in a, in a quite a industrial area. Another one was in like more suburban roads and uh, just sort of quiet more residential places and then we had some which were just on these like very very quiet quite green roads like maybe Right near the escarpment, we chose the sites to represent an urban gradient. So the, the industrial ones were the high, the suburban ones were the medium, and the little sort of more countryish ones were the low. And there, we we well, first of all, actually, we measured the stress of the, the plants. We we had a the tree was sweet pittosporum, which I always say wrong. It's we checked the the stress levels of those different plants we did that with a it's it's a machine that measures the photosynthetic efficiency so that's a way of measuring stress and then we collected the leaf material of both and then back in the lab we we washed them basically it's a sort of a, a washing through a through a filter system and then you can work out what was what was on those leaves and measure them. So what we found was that on a dry weight basis, so we're talking about milligrams per gram of dry material, we found that moss in all, the, all of the different sites collected quite a bit more than the tree. So between twice as much and three times as much, actually. Oh, this is one on a dry weight basis. Um, we, but we also found that moss was more sensitive to urbanisation and whereas the tree didn't seem to sort of care too much and it just like its photosynthetic level was just the same throughout the moss was quite a bit more stressed in the urban area so that was quite interesting and something you know I'd like to sort of delve into a bit more
1: Mm, because can you make the correlation that it is the particulate matter that's
0: stressing it so urbanization consists of quite a few different stressors so you've got excess light often you've got changes in the way that water moves across the landscape, you've got pollution, um, you've got fragmented populations. Like it's a whole level of different things. So it it could be the particulate matter, it could be the pollution, but it's probably a whole range of things together. But moss, if, if you think of the, those cushions and and even mats, they're, they're very complex, almost like a sort of a ragged carpet, and particles can get caught in that. So basically we found that, that on a dry weight basis they were capturing quite a bit of particulate matter.
1: So next time you're thinking it might be time to clean the moss off your roof or your garden path, maybe this gives you pause for thought because that moss is a plant and it's probably helping you keep your environment clean in one way or another
0: there's been a lot of emphasis on planting trees, but even that we know that like some, a lot of animals need shrubs. So if you look at sort of say small birds in little parkland, big trees aren't any good to them, they need they need shelter. So that's just why that's an easy to understand sort of way of, shrubs would add a bit of complexity. So I, I, I wonder whether, like thinking a little bit more about the ground cover, which would be moss and other things, whether that could be a a way of sort of improving our city spaces as well because we do need we need biodiversity and we need complexity and it's sort of there's a richness when you've got lots of different layers which is what happens in nature so i think we shouldn't take too simple a solution in in cities i think as far as cleaning uh you have to have lots of different sort of approaches, and green cities and, and plants in the city are good for a lot of different reasons, and this this could be one of them. The more, that's way more I think of it, and, and I think of moss as probably more of a, an assistance and like a sort of a a, a niche and a, and a contributing rather than I know flat out wave a magic wand. Though so I have heard of in Europe some big walls as uh, you go into sort of car tunnels and stuff, uh, having uh, green walls with moss on them, but I haven't actually seen any, any figures. So this was like a, a first step. So it could be that on green roofs or perhaps green walls or if we sort of increase the sort of complexity of, of plantings, in parks and stuff, you know, maybe maybe Moss has a role there, but I it is early, so I think really at the moment it's like, yeah, wouldn't it be really good to, to try and find out more and see what role Moss can have
1: Alison Haynes is a PhD student at the University of Wollongong and you've been listening to Off Track. I'm Ann Jones and I'll be here next week with a new episode ready to take you somewhere else.